Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we talk to Puya Alimagem about his new book, Contesting the Iranian Revolution. Then we talk to Nate Grubman about recent political developments in Tunisia. And then finally, we speak to Valeria Resta about her new article, Myths of Moderation. Thanks for listening to our program. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book segment, we're joined by Pouya Alimagam from MIT, author of the new book, Contesting the Iranian Revolution. Green Uprisings just came out with Cambridge University Press. Apoya, thank you so much for joining us. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for taking interest in the book. So tell us about this book. This was wonderfully written and so evocative. Uh, what were you trying to accomplish when you set out to write it? Um, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things where I, when I applied for the PhD program at the University of Michigan, I, I had this entire project laid out in my mind. Um, I was to matriculate in the fall of 2009. I had already been admitted. And then in that summer, it was when the uprising began, you know, in June, 2009. Um, and then it, it continued until about February, 2010. And then you kind of still see rumblings of it afterwards. And as the uprising unfolded, um, it kind of changed everything in terms of um, my research projects and, and what I wanted to do as a graduate student. And the reason for that is because I kind of saw how the uprising unfolded and uh, a lot of people kept talking about it, especially when it ended, because um, I began first researching on it the summer after, so about five months after it ended. Um, and a lot of the discourse on it was that it was a failure. The uprising was a failure. Um, it, it was defeated uh, and people kept really talking about it in, in such a way that I felt like they they looked at it in a very in, in too much of a simplistic way, right? So they they saw it as okay. So this uprising was born of a uh, of an election that the protesters um, believed for good reason that it was a fraudulent election. It was the the state that declared um, the incumbent Mahmoud Ahmadinejad as the winner. The the protests basically emerged out of that uh, election cycle, and. Um, as the protests kind of continued, um, they first wanted to invalidate or, or abrogate the election results. And then when the state came down really on the side of the um, incumbent's supposed win, then the uprising kind of transformed to overthrow the system that ratified that win. And, and neither one of those happened. So in that sense, um, people said that the uprising was a failure, right? Because it didn't abrogate the election results. It didn't overthrow the system that uh, verified those election results. So, you know, it's very easy to understand why people called it a failure. But I I thought that, the, you know, I, I was very tuned into this uprising. Um, and, and as I saw it unfold, I saw something completely different happen. So sure, you know, those failures are there, um, but when you look at it from you know bottom-up approach, from actually what happened on the ground and, and the repertoires of action that the protesters used, on what days they used them specifically, what they said, what they wore, um, and, uh, and, and how they basically appropriated all of the state's sources of legitimacy to then discredit that entire system of governance I thought that was a victory. I thought that if you look a little bit deeper, if you if you kind of transcend that binary of win, lose, and start and finish, first of all, you'll realize that the uprising isn't over. It, it cross-pollinates into you know Iranian um, activism and 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 further and you know movements down the line, and also that it wasn't a failure in in, in a more complicated sense because it had so many victories, uh, victories that are still kind of um, rever- rever- reverberating mm-hmm. throughout Iranian political history to the very present. And so I, I really um, didn't agree with that false binary uh, uh, that it was a failure or that it was a success in, in, the, more, in the more superficial sense. And um, as a historian, or at the time I was an aspiring historian, I was a PhD student, when I saw this uprising happen, um, I kind of understood the historical background involved in this because my forte, my the whole reason why I got interested in history was that I always kind of was interested in it, but it was the history of the Iranian revolution 
uh, something that was deeply consequential to my family, but still something that, you know, objectively was is a monumental event in world history. Um, and, and that was really always my academic interest. And then when I saw the uprising transpired 30 years later and how it was rooted mm-hmm. in the Iranian revolution, that's kind of why I saw it differently. And I wanted to tell a more nuanced and, and maybe even subversive story to this history. Now, before we get into the way you retell that story, let's talk a little bit about what it means to be an historian writing about essentially a current event and uh, the way that you were able to construct this archive, so to speak, from videos and the internet and all of this. Talk, talk us through that a little bit. I want to first give a shout out to my PhD advisor, Professor Huang Cole. Uh, when I broached the subject to him, you know, historians like they like traditional archives. They don't want to do something that's typically, they don't want to do something that's too present um, and in very unusual archives. But Professor Cole was actually really supportive, pretty excited about the project. Um, and, 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 you know, and I was too, because I didn't want to wait 50 years to do this history because that's usually, you know, especially when we're dealing with State Department classified uh, documents, especially as they pertain to Iran, you got to wait decades for them to be declassified, right? And sometimes, you know, they're supposed to wait three decades, the 30-year rule. And then when it comes to Iran, uh, the State Department kind of just takes its time. So even past 30 years. So Yervanda Abrahamian, the quintessential historian of modern Iran, uh, who wrote a book, on the overthrow of the U.S., uh, the U.S.-British overthrow of the Iranian government, in 1953, as a seasoned researcher, complained about how five or six six decades after the coup, he still was it was very difficult for him to access these classified mm-hmm. documents. So when you want to do something about 2009, um, it's it's really it's really exciting because you don't got to wait 50 years for these documents. Um, there's just so many new and innovative technologies being used to document this history. You just got to kind of go online and find them. So one of the things that the the demonstrators did was they televised their own revolution or rather they socially broadcasted Mm -hmm. a very pixelated revolution so that the Iranian state did not want to cover it, obviously, or if they did cover it, they would kind of show, you know, something that the protesters may have done that doesn't represent the entire movement, you know, some act of vandalism, they would, they would really just focus on that. Um, a lot of the international media was supposedly invited to leave the country. Re- really what that means is they were kicked out um, after the elections. And so, and typically states do that because they're about to crack down and they don't want eyes on what they're about to do. So the protesters kind of you know, with flip phones, this is this is the era of smartphones, but this is 2009, so a lot of these smartphones hadn't really reached the run yet. So with basic flip phones, they documented the events that were happening on the ground. Um, and the idea was that, well, first we want to preserve this history and we want to tell it ourselves. We don't want the state to tell it. Um, and two is that when there are no eyes on government forces, the government forces feel like they have the freedom to do whatever they want. But what these what these citizen journalists really, um, now pe- there was multiple eyes on them. Mm-hmm. So for instance, like the, the death of Neda Agha Sultan on June 20th, 2009, this is, the, this is what I think Time Magazine called the most televised death in world history. That was not something that the state um, captured and broadcasted to the world. That's not something that CNN or Time Magazine actually was journalists on the ground. Who got, that was something that citizens themselves documented, uploaded onto YouTube, and then it was broadcast around the world when you know international like, journalists or, 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 or news services picked it up. And so, so then there's this archive and there's thousands, like tens of hundreds of thousands of these videos on, for specific days and, and they're captioned. And, and you can see what date they um, uploaded it and there's commentary on it. And you could tell what cities and what streets and stuff are on it too. You kind of recognize it, especially if you've been to Iran. So there was that. And then there was the, the, the digital um, cables that were then leaked onto Wiki, WikiLeaks. And, and, and then you really kind of see the US, there's no US embassy in Iran. There's, there's, there's US embassies around the region. 
And, and they, it, this is kind of when you see that the U.S. embassies, and maybe this, all embassies are like this, I don't know, but this is certainly true of the U.S. embassy. It's really about intelligence and data gathering and surveillance. So, so I don't have to wait for these documents right, to come, right. come out 60 years from now. I had real-time access to them. And then there's, there's people who experience this movement themselves, right? And all the things they did online and, and the posts and the images and the memes and all these things they created to kind of show their strategies. These all became part of, of this, this history. And then, and then, you know, because so much of this history is rooted in the, in the Iranian revolution itself, um, that's something that's been researched, you know, above and beyond. So those archives exist. The books who, that have used those archives have, have, have existed. So I kind of consulted all of that um, to kind of recreate this interpreted history. And what, what's really interesting about the, what really matches your, that archive or that data or whatever you want to call it with your, with your argument is that you're actually really focusing on the way that they construct their rhetoric and the way that they appropriate state discourse. And so you can actually see it happening in real time. So tell yeah, us so a little that, bit about that, that then, about this argument about uh, appropriating the sacred symbols of the regime. Yeah, so that's one of the most ingen ingenious things, ingen uh, ingenious things that the, the protesters did, and that's that's kind of as what, what made me as a historian super excited about it. I was excited about it for a lot of reasons as an Iranian and all that, but also as a historian. Um, so the, the government itself gets has multiple sources of legitimacy. One, and some of these sources kind of overlap, right? So it's one of its sources of legitimacy is that it is an Islamic Republic. So it harnesses Islamic symbols and sources of legitimacy to authenticate itself. The other one is the Islamic revolution, right? So this is where the overlaps. Mm -hmm. So a lot of its uh, political holidays that are embedded in its political calendar are either rooted in Islam, a, a political interpretation of Islam now, or they're rooted in the history of the Iranian revolution. Um, and, and, and that political calendar is, is a very, really good testament to how the state kind of constructed its whole ideology. So let me give you an example. So Palestinian liberation is, is really important to the Iranian government, right? And, and there's a reason why. I kind of had to go back and explain this history of Iran and Palestine before and after the revolution. But then after the revolution, they kind of, Put it in its in its symbols and its in its in its ideology, like children's books are now being printed or then being printed that talk about grammar, but grammar in terms of Palestinian liberation, right? So, children in grade school are learning about Persian grammar, but they're also learning about political points like Palestine occupation, liberation from Israeli occupation, all that, and then the aesthetic landscape of the country has been changed, right? So there are murals, there's, there's squares devoted to Palestinian resistance and revolution and liberation. Even on Iranian currency, uh, you see like symbols of Palestine, like Jerusalem, the Dome of the Rock, uh, the Golden Mosque, uh, the Golden Dome Mosque of Jerusalem on the currency. And then of course you see um, the first Friday after uh, the first, the first, the last Friday in the, first Ramadan mm -hmm. after the Iranian revolution, Khomeini as a head of state, but also as a religious leader, gives himself the authority to declare to the Muslim world that the last Friday of the month of Ramadan should be a day called Quds Day or Jerusalem Day, devoted to the liberation of Palestine and the government that champions this liberation, right? So these, like, it, so that's why Palestine is just like one of its many symbols. I mean, the, 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 the foreign operations arm of the Islamic Revolutionary Guards is called the Quds Brigade, the Jerusalem Brigade, or the Quds Force, the Jerusalem Force. Um, there's just so many, all, so many battles in the Iran-Iraq war were named after Jerusalem. It's, it's such a big part of its ideology, right? So, so then you see the protesters, the green protesters 30 years later, in 2009, this is after three decades of being raised underneath the authority and, and the ideology of the Islamic Republic. So they've been reading those grade, grade school books, they learn grammar in that way, they see these squares, these murals, they see the Iranian currency, they, say that, they see all these things and, and they've come to learn that discourse, they've come to learn that discourse of Palestinian liberation. And what ends up happening on Jerusalem day, after the election results, so this is September 18, 2009, 
where the government, the Iranian government wants its supporters to come out onto the streets and you know, shout anti-Israeli slogans and shout pro-Iranian government slogans. What was then, what was actually happening then is that those crowds still came out, but the Ben Green movement, which had been seemingly driven underground on this day where the Iranian government wanted people to come out, those activists also came out on Jerusalem day of all days, um, shouting slogans um, in solidarity uh, either with Palestine saying that, um, we like the past, well, like there, there was really two slogans, right? Two iconic slogans of that day. Na Gaza, na Lebanon, John Iran. No to Gaza, no to Lebanon. My life is only for Iran. And that was kind of this thing where because the Iranian government had been championing the Palestinian liberation, Hezbollah and Lebanon, uh, the Iranians themselves are saying, well, essentially what about us? And so they were associating the Palestinians and, and Hezbollah and Lebanese as guilty by association. So they were negating them in order to negate the Iranian government that championed them. But then what was also really fascinating was you also saw the second slogan that said, if I remember correctly, Iran Oh, people, why are you sitting? I mean, it rhymes, it's, it's mm -hmm. rhymes in Persian. It's so powerful in Persian. But essentially says, why are you sitting when Iran has become Palestine? And the idea is that we Iranians who were protesting in 2009, like the Palestinians are oppressed and the Iranian state, like the Israeli state is our usurper of power and is oppressing us. So they use that, that discourse of Palestinian liberation that the Iranian government had been teaching them for 30 years to then subvert it and equate the Iranian government with, with this enemy that the Iranian government had been telling them is an enemy for 30 years. They did this, on Palestine Day, they did this on Ashura. And this is how they kind of use that history of the Iranian revolution, the, the repertoires of action, the political symbols of the Iranian state to subvert and, and rob the state of its legitimacy. So this is one of the most important victories of the Green Movement that you kind of lose, you don't see or you erase it. If you, if you only see it in the sense that it failed because it, it failed to abrogate the election results and the state that ratified it. So that is like one example of like a broader theme in the book of just this crowded political calendar and the way that the Green Movement was able to take advantage of all these public events and public holidays. And the regime couldn't like cancel all of them because it was too important for their legitimacy. So walk us through that a little bit about the rhythms of the Green Movement and how they were able to appropriate kind of both the calendar and public space. Yeah, so the first thing is, is that if, I mean, you, you probably remember in 2009, and I gotta, I understand this is probably an American audience. So I kind of got to tell them that the <laughs> elections in other countries are just very different. In the United States, like a two-year process, multi, you know, hundreds of millions, maybe even billions, I forget. Um, it's a lengthy process. And Iran, as in other countries, it's a much shorter process. It's not that huge of a business like it is here. But what ends up happening in 2009 is that in the weeks, in the run-up to the election, um, the, the campaign for the reformist or the you know, quasi-opposition candidate, Mir Hussein Musavi, the, the campaign turned into a street movement. Mm -hmm. And this was a product of the idea, this is product of the Iranian state strategy that backfired because the Iranian state wanted Iranians to participate in elections, right? And, and that's typical of every state, right? So there's get out your vote campaigns here in the United States because the moment you cast your ballot, you're participating in a really important state sanction event. And in doing so, you're not only voting for a candidate, you're kind of acknowledging and, and recognizing the authority of the system. So the Iranian state uh, in, in the four years before, in the election before 2009, was, was hit with a boycott. So it really didn't want another boycott because that would be bad for the legitimacy of the state. So it had this huge get out, the get out the vote campaign. But really what it did was to get Iranians talking about the elections, uh, it removed a lot of the political repression uh, in the system. So it removed a lot of the restrictions on the internet. It removed a lot of restrictions for gatherings. And people began to talk about the elections and, and, and mobilize and the more they mobilize, they the more the, the less 
reaction or the rest, the, the, the less of a repression they saw from the state. So they felt like something was different. They could feel that the political system had opened up for them, even if, even if temporarily. And that resulted in a, um, in a mushrooming of political activity. The state really kind of facilitated it, but then it backfired because, you know, I have a quote from the, um, the uh, Revolutionary Guards commander in Tehran saying that Musavi has turned his campaign into a velvet revolution and we will, we will nip any such velvet revolution in the bud. So they kind of felt like something was in the air that it was not what they anticipated, right? So then the elections happened, but people were still mobilized, right? So elections happened, allegations of fraud surfaced that night when the election results were announced. The next day, which is um, Saturday, June 13th, uh, I think the motions got the best of the voters and there was a bit of rioting in, in places like Tehran. And then a lot of bad press. The, spoke, the state kind of focused on the rioting to be like, look at these hooligans, look at these thugs, like this is typical of states, right? They just try to um, you know, present these, their opposition in such a light to discredit them. And then what was really interesting was that was Saturday. Sunday, you see the, the crowds kind of really began to take shape and much more discipline to kind of negate that bad press that they garnered on the first day of protest, Saturday. On Sunday, now they were mobilizing in much larger crowds doing silent protests. Hmm. And then Monday was a mass march, right? So there was about 3 million people just in Tehran, but the protests happened everywhere, not just in Tehran. Now, this is where, again, where those digital archives kind of really kind of show you why, how important they are. Because the state, the mayor of Tehran was quoted in state media as acknowledging a crowd of 3 million protesters. Then that, uh, that acknowledgement came down because the state did not want to acknowledge 3 million people in one city protesting against it. So, so then there was this like whole issue of how, how many people were there. And then people began to de debate those numbers because numbers are everything, right? But, and I, and I said, the state acknowledged 3 million, but now I didn't have the evidence anymore. So people were like, 3 million people came out against the state, you're dreaming, Puya. And then the activists themselves uploaded the footage. So just on one street, Valley Ass Street in Tehran, there's a pedestrian overpass, right, to facilitate traffic. That the, someone on one of those pedestrian overpasses is is with it, with their flip phone is filming the crowd mm -hmm. from one angle, and you see this sea of people, like just the most massive crowd, and you think that's it. And then he turns around to the other side of the overpass, and you see another sea of people on the other side, this massive crowd. And that kind of settles that debate, right? So you, you see it. So the protests continue every day for a full week from, from basically the Saturday after elections to Khamenei giving his Friday sermon, what, 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 what the opposition called the sermon of blood, right? So my father and I, we stayed away till like three o'clock in the morning in California to listen into this. What he said was gonna matter because he doesn't normally give the Friday sermons unless it's a really big you know, national or international issue that he has to speak to. And he spoke to it and he basically said, he's like, the elections are legitimate. The Guardian Council has surveyed all the complaints. They ratified it. Um, it's a done deal. There's now a security issue in the country. The Zionists and the Americans and the imperialists all together are at our doors to, uh, to uh, and they, you know, the state kind of okay. cast the entire opposition in the light of a, a, an imperialist conspiracy, right? And that's also very typical. And henceforth, there will be a crackdown. Um, whatever blood is spilt will be on the hands of the opposition leaders who insist on continuing this, this conspiracy. And, and that's the next day was when Neda Agosotan was killed. And then the protest crackdown, you know, although there was a crackdown, a small scale crackdown ex that was happening the full week after the election results, mm -hmm. after that Friday sermon was when it became a full scale. Then the movement was driven underground. And that's when everyone thought it was over. And then this is why I say it's not a green uprising, but it's a green uprisings because right. then it resurfaced. This is when, this is when like, you, when you, just when you thought it was over, it wasn't. Then on those days of the political calendar where the Iranian state wants people to come out, that's when the opposition, the, the protesters would resurface sometimes weeks later, sometimes two months later to reignite the movement on those days of action, like Jerusalem Day, like the anniversary of the seizure of the US embassy on November 4th, like the anniversary of the martyrdom of Ayatollah Beheshti. Um, and and, and they, did, they did that on all these days. And the interesting thing is, I know we talked about this before the video, was 
December, it turns out to be, you know, six months later, just when you think like by six months, it'll all be over. Six months later, there was three massive days of action. And one of them had to do with the death of Ayatollah Montazeri, which he had been this, you know, opposition stalwart, the senior clergyman who used his Islamic credentials to kind of question or cast doubt onto the legitimacy of the Islamist state. He then dies of natural causes in the middle of this uprising that the opposition kind of used again, because opposition was using for these excuses to come out. And now all of a sudden his funeral was another one of those excuses. So actually that might be a nice transition to one last uh, theme within the book that we could talk about, which was kind of the role of leaders like Montezeri and, uh, you know, in, in many of the leaders of the Green Movement came out of that revolutionary generation. And so in a sense, the Green Movement is a critique from within, not just with the crowds appropriating slogans, but also with the intellectuals kind of working within uh, the system itself and, and challenging its fundamentals. So tell us a little bit about that side of it, about yeah. kind of the intellectual critique of this post-Islamist move that you talk about. It's a great question, right? So this is what chapter five, and you know, while Mir Hussein Musavi was the candidate around which everyone kind of organized, he was not a clergyman, right? This is why I devoted an entire chapter to Montazeri, because Montazeri was a not only was he a clergyman, he was a senior clergyman, and most importantly, he's one of the founders of the Islamic Republic. He's one of the framers. As the essence of the Islamic Republic is this constitution. And the essence of the constitution is the, the idea of the rule of the jurisprudence, right? In Persian, we call it velayat al-faqih, or velayat al-faqih in Arabic. And, and Khomeini was one of the, the innovators of this theory, but so was Montazer. Montazer is the one who put it into the constitution. Khomeini didn't. Khomeini did not write the constitution. He delegated people to write the constitution. Khomeini and Behesti and, and others were the ones who really theorized this as a practical political concept that should be implemented in a state structure. Uh, and then, you know, when Khomeini was basically nearing the end of his life, uh, he ordered the constitution to be revised and then he passes away and it was revised after his death. Uh, and then the, a lot of these powers were augmented, right? By then, uh, Montaze had a falling out with the state even before the constitution was amended. And he kind of saw the evolution of the system and he becomes its foremost critic. So Khamenei himself, even though Montaze was involved in Khamenei's political ascendancy, right? So um, Montaze was for instance, supposed to be the Friday prayer leader after the revolution. And that's a really big you know, position. Uh, Talagani was the Friday, Mahmoud, Ayatollah Mahmoud Talagani was the Friday prayer leader in Tehran, and he passes away in, in the same year of the revolution. Then uh, they approached Montazeri to be the Friday prayer leader, and he basically says, no, like, I think I'm too busy, I'm doing all these other things like running the constitution, I think Khamenei should be the Friday prayer leader. He gives better khutbahs anyways, Friday sermons anyways. So he was so involved in, in the ascendancy of Khamenei, he helped Khamenei, you know, get this position as the Friday prayer leader. When Khamenei eventually becomes supreme leader after Khomeini's death in 89, Khomeini, Khamenei eventually puts Montazeri on house arrest. So they put not just any cleric, but one of the framers of the Islamic constitution, one of the founders of the Islamic system on house arrest for like six years. Montazeri eventually sees the evolution of the system he helped create and changes his mind about this entire project, mm -hmm. right? Because this is the thing about Islamist states, right? They, Everyone kind of like thinks that they're going to create heaven on earth. They write something on paper, a blueprint that looks really good. And then when they go to create it, they go through this process of trial and error. And, and this is what post-Islamism really is. After that process of trial and error, making huge mistakes, they kind of have a change of mind or change of heart about whether we should even have an Islamist state or not. So Montezeri is a clergyman. He, he remains a clergyman. It's not like he all of a sudden becomes secular or or you know, anti-religion or no longer believes in God, he retains his, cler uh, his clerical status. He retains his belief in, and belief in Islam, all these things. But then he comes out and says that the Islamic Republic is neither Islamic nor a Republic. And this is huge that is coming from him. Right, right. right? Not, not Musavi, because Musavi is not a clergyman. And then he says that when, and he, this, is, this was a very indirect 
but also very obvious jab at the supreme leader, right? Who, who Montanzari outranks him in terms of his clerical standing. He outranks, maybe not politically anymore, but he outranks Khamenei in terms of his religious learning. And he basically issues this non-binding um, religious edict or fatwa saying that when you, when you no longer rule in a just fashion, your rulership is null and void, right? So the fact that Montazari said yeah. this was huge, huge, right? Like he's casting doubt not only on the system, but his poster board, which is Khamenei. And then he dies. He dies on December 20, 20th, I remember, or 21st. Uh, this, is, uh, this is when the green movement was supposed to be over six months later. And I had all these excuses for momentum. And then in December kind of climaxes with Ashura. This is December 27, 2009. This Ashura itself is so loaded with meaning. This is why I had to do an entire right. chapter on, on Montazeri post-Islamism and Ashura. Uh, and what it's Ashura like means. It's not like the regime can cancel Ashura. They can't cancel Ashura. They, they tried to cancel some of the events when they could. But if you were to cancel something like Ashura, that by virtue of canceling Ashura, that would already be a massive victory for the opposition. So, so they tried, they didn't cancel it, but then they couldn't control its messaging. Then comes the anniversary of the Iranian revolution itself. This is February 11, 2010. And um, this is when people th- said the Green Movement was over, right? Because the Green Movement was like, look, if you look at all these events that we appropriated and subverted against the Green Movement, against the state, February 11, 2010 is the grand prize of it all. It will be on this day when we take it over and we finally push this regime over the cliff. So they had all this like planning to really come out and subvert this massive event. And the Iranian state had all kinds of planning to its credit to prevent just that, right? So they marshaled crowds. Some people came on their own volition out of belief in the system. Some people were marshaled there and literally I would say tens of millions of people came out to celebrate Revolution Day. Uh, but, but it was very strategic the way the Iranian government handled it. Like, first of all, they put loudspeakers on the main thoroughfares of whether the state supporters would gather so that they can make sure that if there's going to be opposition slogans, they would be drowned out by the loudspeakers. They had militiamen all across the protests. They extend, there was supposed to be a long weekend. They extended that long weekend. So if you, people were on the fence, whether they should go and protest the state or not, maybe they go on vacation instead, which some people actually did. Um, and, and, that, and really the show of force the state was able to marshal was when a lot of Green Movement activists were stunned to realize that the state does enjoy some, or a lot of support. And that's when they kind of were fully demoralized. And people said, this is the end of the movement. But it actually wasn't, right? You see it resurfaced time and again in the years later. And then the slogans and strategies cross-pollinating not only other Iranian protests, but protests across the region in the Arab world. Not to say that the Green Movement was a spark that started the Arab Spring. I would never say that. But some of the strategies cross-pollinated. No, it's really, really interesting. Um, and uh, this is just such a rich book. And I wish we could keep talking about it uh, for another hour. But um, uh, I'm going to have to say thank you for joining us and uh, for talking about your book. And um, look forward to reading more. It's my pleasure. Thank you again. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's topical segment, we're joined by Nate Grubman of Stanford University, author of a recent article in the Journal of Democracy about Tunisia. Uh, Nate, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So why don't we start uh, with the article you just published and uh, the moves by Tunisian President Kaisa Saeed against uh, the judiciary. Tell us, you know, how do you read that and uh, why is it important? Okay, so going back to uh, uh, this past July 25th, Kai Syed has been um, concentrating powers in his hands. He first started on concentrating uh, executive and legislative power. Um, In December, he suspended parts of the constitution. Um, There was some speculation going back as far as last December that um, that he would dissolve the judicial council to assume more control of the judiciary. He had hesitated from doing so because of the expectation of strong opposition. On February 6th, which 
was um, an important, which is an important anniversary in Tunisia, the anniversary of the assassination of leftist political leader Shokri Belid. He appeared at the interior ministry in the middle of the night and called on people to um, basically to defy public health measures and, and get out in the streets and protest for the dissolution of the uh, Supreme Judicial Council, which he announced from that point forward would be um, dissolved. And so what, and what happened after that? So what happened after that is that um, later on in the, the week, there was some spec, well, first, um, the most interesting thing was that the interior ministry sent police to the judicial council to close it before any sort of official order was issued, which I think is a sign of the state of the rule of law in Tunisia right now. Kai mm -hmm. Syed's uh, calls for protests were not heeded by very many people. So there was a small crowd that gathered which I think um, you know, some are interpreting as a sign of uh, dampening enthusiasm for Kai Syed. Later in the week, he, um, he announced a decree to form a uh, temporary judicial council, which would give him a lot more power over um, appointments of, of judges. He also, in that decree, banned uh, judges' strikes um, and so that's something the judiciary in Tunisia is a strong corporate body. They've organized, they organized a month long strike in, in November and December, 2020. Um, but uh, Kai Syed has uh, banned that kind of um, opposition in this measure. This is taking place with, um, uh, it's important to remember that in the background, uh, Kai Syed has criticized the judiciary and characterized it as Another institution that's beholden by wealthy and partisan interests is be and is being used to serve their ends. Um, he has suggested that the judiciary has not only um, uh, played around with the evidence regarding the uh, political assassinations in Tunisia, but that it has also refused to take action against political parties and candidates who have broken the electoral laws um, of uh, corrupt um, business people. So he's kind of, um, uh, he's kind of held this um, public trial against um, a number of organizations and figures and, um, and used, that, uh, used that rhetoric to build uh, opposition against the judiciary and build support for his moves. And so now a big question is whether the judiciary under this, um, this new decree will be even more responsive to his calls for, um, or for retribution or, or justice as, as he would characterize it. Now, the, now, he was going after a target which wasn't uh, necessarily all that popular. Yeah, so the, it's it's difficult to um, to really know. I mean, it, going back and looking at the um, Arab barometer uh, questions regarding the judiciary, it seems that Tunisians have been uh, relatively divided uh, among uh, between those who trust the judiciary and and those who do not. Um, I did see uh, a survey conducted recently by uh, the Center for International Private Enterprise, and, and one of the, the findings there was that support for the judiciary seemed to have decreased recently. Um, so that may be a sign that, that his rhetoric is, is working. Meanwhile, what about his own popularity? So again, I think it's hard to say. If you look at most of the public opinion polls coming out of Tunisia, as well as um, a recent public opinion poll that was uh, cited in the Washington Post monkey cage by Alex Blackman and Elizabeth Nugent, it seems that he enjoys um, a lot of support. The latest uh, poll in Tunisia shows his support at something like 65%. Now that number is, um, is, is lower than, than um, those surveys were showing last summer. But there also are signs of dampening enthusiasm for Kai Syed. Um, so uh, he has this national consultation process, which has enjoyed very, very little participation. This is this, is this online referendum. Exactly. exactly. 
And so um, my reading of the situation is that underlying this support for Kaisaid is um, a good degree of ambivalence, that there are a lot of Tunisians who, well, um, they may support the idea that, um, you know, that Tunisia needs drastic political change, perhaps the idea that uh, Anahda was a big part of the problem before, that there's not necessarily a lot of enthusiasm for um, his, you know, uh, his political vision. And there seems to be a lot of concern. The economic situation in Tunisia is very dire right now. Kai Syed so far has not really offered um, answers to uh, address it. And so um, there's a lot of concern that he's some, that he's, focusing on the wrong issues. Now, why don't we broaden this out a little bit in terms of, you know, what uh, Kais Said has done and what it means for the country's political institutions. So, I mean, this has been a, a fairly kind of broad uh, move against all of the major post-revolution institutions. And what does this mean for, uh, how, how can you understand Tunisia's political system right now? Yeah, so I think that, um, for the last 10 years, Tunisia has been held up as this uh, example of this almost experiment of uh, democracy in the region, which I think, you know, has um, caused a lot of scholars, perhaps like myself, to take um, more interest in it. And to some Tunisians has been um, grating at times because it has um, obscured the uh, the many problems that existed with Tunisian democracy before Kai Syed's move. Um, he has been able to leverage this um, frustration with the political, with the, the system that was in place before July 25th, with the fact that it had not delivered on people's expectations for economic transformation, that um, completing the political transition itself seemed to be very difficult, that, um, you know, at, at times there has been a uh, concern with uh, a decline in, in, in public services, these kinds of concerns. So he was able to leverage those, pose as um, an outsider who had, who had not really participated, he had not participated in politics before the revolution, did not participate in the transition except as a critic. He, uh, he characterized the transition as an abortion of, of the revolution and its goals. Um, in terms of the, the big picture, I think that there are a lot of reasons for concern. Um, although it's not yet clear today that Kai Syed will be able to consolidate um, a dictatorship, he is operating as um, a relatively unconstrained dictator today. And, um, and the opposition is having a really hard time uh, organizing any sort of um, concerted, uh, organizing around an alternative, in part because there is so much frustration with what preceded July 25th. And there's not a huge amount of enthusiasm for bringing back the elected parliament, most especially. No, again, it's difficult. You know, it, we should we should interpret survey results with with a grain of salt during this uh, period, but. Um, very few political actors in Tunisia outside of the Islamist movement uh, are calling for the restoration of the parliament. The, um, there is a little bit more support among opposition elites for some sort of national dialogue process. Recently, they've raised the possibility of holding a national dialogue without the participation of Kai Syed. Um, but obviously he would, he would be a, a very important spoiler. Mm -hmm. um, they, but again, holding a national dialogue requires opposition elites to um, combat the, the legacy of previous national dialogues, which although they were considered a success internationally are remembered by some Tunisians as an effort by elites to divide power and kind of cut deals. I mean, building on that, I mean, with the suspension of the constitution, with Saeed uh, largely operating without constraints, reminds me of uh, Jan Elster's old idea of, uh, you know, constitution making as rebuilding a, she rebuilding a ship while you're at sea. Um, yeah. and, and there's all kinds of problems with that, obviously. Is there a horizon that you can see among Tunisian uh, opposition and, support and supporters of Saeed 
for returning to some kind of rule of law or some type of constitutional order? Yes, I think things are highly unpredictable right now. Um, Kai Syed is um, trying to lead a process in which you know, he's conducting this national consultation, which is very likely to show support for um, the referendum that he's proposed for the uh, for a, a transition to a presidential system. He has a team that is uh, preparing a, a constitution, which is set to be released during the spring, and then there would be a referendum held in July. But at the same time, um, the economic situation is, as I mentioned, very dire. There are shortages of, of basic goods right now. Um, the state has uh, started to pay some of the uh, public sector workers late. If these sorts of things affect his popularity, then he's losing um, what I see as, as his main asset and the main thing that makes him difficult to oppose. He does not have a, a political party. He did not come up through the security apparatus. He really seems to be trying to um, establish um, uh, good relations with the police, but um, there are some signs that he has struggled to do so um, with the military. The generals haven't been appearing with him um, in recent months. And so I think if his popularity decreases and the country's economic situation continues to remain dire, he may be um, either forced out of office or, or forced to, um, to share power in some way. Well, one last question then to go back to where we began. Um, what is the role then of the, of the judiciary in all of this? If, if we're operating in a context where the rule of law has largely been suspended, does some kind of judicial response um, seem like it could be a part of this um, kind of rebalancing? Yes. So as I mentioned, the judiciary is a strong um, uh, corporate actor in Tunisia that recently held a long strike. They were able to hold a two-day strike in response to Kaisaid's closure of the Judicial Council, which seemed to enjoy widespread support. So far, they are respecting his, um, his ban on, on strikes, um, but they have called for a demonstration, um, which it was just announced, I believe it's supposed to be held on Thursday in front of the Judicial Council. They're also going to be, uh, they're calling for members of the judiciary to wear these um, uh, red armbands uh, to show that they're kind of um, operating under, under this oppression. Um, so I do think that the judiciary um, uh, has, has the ability to, um, to organize, put some pressure on him that maybe that, that does enjoy uh, more support than the legislature and the political parties. So things are unpredictable, but it, it is quite possible that a movement of the judiciary could enjoy um, uh, some, some broader support. Well, great. Well, Nate, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us about this. Thanks, Mark. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. And on this week's article segment, we talked to Valeria Resta, the Interdisciplinary Center for the Study of North Africa in the Middle East in Italy, uh, author of the new article, The Myth of Moderation, Following the Arab Uprisings. Uh, it just came out in the British Journal of Middle Eastern Studies. Uh, Valeria, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about this article and uh, what you were looking at in Tunisia and Egypt. Well, thank you very much for the invitation, first of all. And well, this article um, started from the idea of looking, at least from the perspective of party politics, uh, whether polarization can be accountable for what happened in Egypt and in Tunisia. I mean, do the different parts uh, of the, the transition process undertook eventually in the two countries has something to do uh, with the role played by political parties and in particular with, uh, with, with the polarization? Because, you know, there was at, that, at the time this research started, that was kind of wisdom related to the fact that um, I mean, the Tunisian transition was successful because there was not polarization, whereas the Egyptian transition failed because of polarization. I mean, regardless its causes, I mean, some, somebody 
said that polarization was driven by the presence of uh, um, anti-system parties, of uh, Salafi parties, uh, others because of centrifugal drives. Um, so I wanted to test this hypothesis basically. Um, and uh, I did that uh, according to, um, I mean, to a quantitative text analysis on uh, the party manifestos, the parties produced uh, in occasion of the funding election in order to see whether that was, um, was the case. And yes, and after that, I realized actually that uh, polarization had little to do with uh, contrary, I, I need that to be honest, contrary to all my expectations, uh, polarization had little to do in that, with, uh, with the outcome um, of the transition. Quite on the contrary, um, I did observe that um, I mean, in, in Egypt, um, there was not such a polarization because, uh, I mean, at least from a spatial perspective, um, the Freedom and Justice Party occupied the center of the political states. So from, from such a perspective, um, it could have coalesced with any other parties, be them Salafi parties or secular parties. By contrast, in Tunisia, there was a I mean, another was kind of isolated uh, and on, on the right extreme of the political space. He was eventually forced to coalesce with parties because he only had the relative majority of seats. But this was exactly the same for the Freedom and Justice Party. So um, why, why this decision? So and I went going deep in my, after this mm -hmm. basic, this first glance, going deep was the content of politicking at the time of the funding election. Um, in order to be more specific, the, the, it was a problem of identity issues. I mean, in Egypt, uh, the competition was majorly driven by identity issue. And this was an aspect that I investigated in depth in another article. While in Tunisia, yes, identity was of course important, but the competition was more programmatic. I mean, uh, the party voters relation were, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I cannot say programmatic because we are in, in right. that context, so, but I mean, um, policies had a role in shaping, uh, in shaping politics, how political parties, the, I mean, conducted the, the um, yes, the, their, 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 their electoral race in the, so that, that's so, fascinating then to actually find that ideological polarization, at least, was greater in Tunisia than it was in Egypt. Yes, I mean, uh, of I mean, I need to be specific in this mm -hmm. because uh, I surveyed only um, only the relevant parties in Tunisia. I mean, which were in, in both Tunisia and Egypt, which is a great. I mean, which nonetheless is a great amount of share of representation inside the parliament because what mattered to me was. Uh, surveying the parties that eventually um, managed to sit inside the parliament because I was interested in looking uh, the decision-making phase. So I was looking at, so I, and I could not survey all parties because some of them not, didn't even present it. Uh, there, there, were, there were a lot of parties in Tunisia. Yeah, I mean, there was, I mean, at least registered at the time of the funding election, something like 150. So, I mean, too much, but that eventually managed to enter. There was not that much, but the problem was that some of them, and the same is for Egypt, didn't even present a problem. So, I mean, I decided to survey all the relevant parties, which nonetheless was, in, I mean, allowed me to cover the 18% of parliamentary parties in uh, Egypt and the 60% or something like that in Tunisia. So, I mean, it was good enough. But yes, what I found was that um, the, the political space in Tunisia appeared more polarized than the Egyptian one. I mean, it, it was clearly, I mean, it, um, you can see clearly that in one side there was uh, left parties, left secular parties. On the other side of this political spectrum, there was another all alone. Uh, this was not the case for uh, for Egypt because in Egypt I have the Freedom and Justice Party that occupies the center of the political space, and 
I mean, I have all the Salafi parties on its right, and I have left, I mean, secular parties on, on its left. So, and he's just in the center. I mean, there is not, I mean, he could have brokered the, the, the transition in a better way. He, would freedom and justice parties able to, um, to profit, to manage, to, to, yes, to take advantage of his central uh, role? I mean, I go pushing even further the argument, he could have played the role the Christian democracy in Italy played. I mean, uh, so as, as the pivot of the political system, not as one faction as he eventually did. So, um, yes, and this was, I mean, I mean, at least from the perspective of polarization, it was absolutely contrary of my expectations. And, and of course, this is, I'm speaking in relative terms because I cannot put all, all political parties, Egyptian and Tunisian in one political space and see uh, if there is some, I mean, which right. are more far apart than the other because the two party system are simply incomparable because they, I mean, of course I did try, but <laughs> I look at what I found was that one extreme was occupied by Tunisian parties and the other by Egyptian, but it's obvious because um, each and every party system has its jargons, has different words because of the approach that I used, it was, it mattered a lot. And um, so, it, I mean, I'm just speaking of relative uh, party system, but this was what I found. So let's talk about your approach. I think one of the real contributions of the article is the methodology that you develop for looking at these party platforms. So tell us a little bit about this and how did you analyze uh, all this text? Yes, I mean, I spent quite almost three years to do that. But um, yes, uh, what I, found I did was just to taking all the party manifestos produced by the relevant political parties and and apply on them a quantitative text analysis using wordfish. I mean, um, okay, in, in most parts of the world, when you speak about, when you want to analyze polarization, you have a variety of tools at disposal. I mean, you have expert surveys, you have the compartment manifesto projects, so on support, which all relies on a definition of left and right. Uh, something we, we can just not use in, 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 uh, in the MENA region. So the problem was to how to approach. And uh, I opted for an unsupervised approach, which assumes that you don't know what drives the political competition. Um, and, uh, and, and what, in, uh, yes, and, and uh, for me, it was very easy from this perspective because mm -hmm. you assume you don't know anything about it and you uh, just leave that it is the relative use of the words each party may uh, that, I mean, finally um, determines uh, where a given party locates within uh, a, political, a political system. Um, so yes, this, this was the, the approach. And I used the WorldFish algorithm developed by Slapin and Put. Uh, but of course, um, WorldFish algorithm is, uh, is used for multiple elections. So I just took for constant some variables and I used for just one shot of the, the election that was the only election that I had at disposal when I started this research. And, um, and, and yes, you, I mean, you use Rich Nielsen's uh, approach to uh, coding uh, Arabic text. Yeah, this was a mess. <laughs> this was a real mess because yes, because you know perfect, you know better than me that I mean um, because I, yes, all this mm, is involves uh, something that is kind of uh, a stemming process, which is a sort of cleaning the house. Okay, uh, I mean you remove. Uh, uh, words, punctuation, so on and so forth. And what, in mo what is most important, you reduce all the words to their roots, to their lemma. But you know <laughs> that me right, that right. Arabic, you cannot do that. Just you cannot do that so straightforward. Right? So um, the problem was that uh, once I I cleaned the test, I also needed to double check with the reference text. Uh, I mean, with the paper, um, whether the stamp was correct or not, because in a lot of cases it, it was not correct. But I mean, uh, I was helped also by a stemming, a stemming package uh, developed for Arab by Richard Nielsen, which tried to, 
I mean, tackles the, the problems that we have with Arabic language when we want to do this kind of processes. Yeah, but, and this helps quite a lot, quite a bit, but yeah, it was, yeah. I mean, a lot has been handmade because uh, you need to double check to make sense of the words once word. For instance, uh, there was also another problem that when, for instance, you put um, PDFs and uh, you, um, I mean, uh, there was some problem, especially with the part manifestos of Anhanta, which was one of the few that I had in PDF, so I wanted to take advantage of this and not write by hand because I think that was also this. Um, there was a problem with the recognition of Islam because, you know, in some special characters, uh, I mean, you know, some, some special writing styles, uh, the L is conflated with the M, so on and so forth. So, and um, and the, the, the software didn't recognize this. So even with- That's the, a, That is a real problem. <laughs> yes, I mean, so it, it was a real mess, but um, I mean, yeah. yes, a machine, I mean, computer assisted techniques can help, can help, but cannot do all the words. So yeah, 50 and 50. <laughs> so let's broaden back out then to the big picture and your major conclusions. Um, you know, you, you take on in the article, the, this inclusion moderation thesis, you talk about different def definitions of polarization. What, what do you really think we learned from the way that you approached, um, you know, the ideology in, in these platforms? Well, I mean, the main, I think that the major things is that I, I, I was born as a transitologist. I mean, I, I studied with Merlino, so I, I am a student of democratization. But this research actually brings the state back in, brings the previous uh, authoritarian regime back in, because, I mean, according to the inclusion moderation hypothesis, the more parties are included into the electoral competition, the more they tend to moderate their stances. So the more that the, the party system is prone to democratization. But what we did actually observe was that, was that the effects of inclusion um, are observable in, in Egypt, but not in Tunisia in terms of Islamist parties moderation, but, as far as the democratizing effects uh, are concerned, they are observed in Tunisia, but not in Egypt. So the problem is that, I mean, what, I mean, my hypothesis, what I eventually came up with is that the problem is not, I mean, moderation in super se, is where, wherein do this party moderate? Uh, because the problem is the problem of context, because uh, speaking uh, clearly, the parties that played a major role in the transitions were somehow active and present even before uh, the transition during the authoritarian regime. So they, I mean, especially in the case of AG, they, the Freedom and Justice Party was not allowed to compete, but nonetheless was allowed to fill independent candidates and they were incredibly popular. I mean, just remember what happened in the election of 2005. Mm -hmm. uh, so. I mean, my guess was that, I mean, and this was also what Sommer once wrote, um, is that the problem is not uh, where, if you decide to include or not some parties, but which is the context. I mean, because if you include parties within an authoritarian regime as happened in Egypt, uh, what they eventually, um, the, the final result is that is nothing but an authoritarian learning. So um, they, uh, they kind of learn how running, running politics in terms of patterns of identity politics because identity politics serve the purposes of the previous dictator of, I mean, dividing the opposition. Uh, it was a powerful tool. Identity politics is a powerful tool in the hand of autocrats in the region in order to um, manipulate uh, all any political uh, uh, organization or party-like organization. So, uh, yes, um, it's, this is not, it's not about moderation. Then it really is about. No, it's, it's an assessment. I mean, a moderation is a is um, is not an is a necessary but not sufficient condition. I mean, what is sufficient is uh, uh, um, 
a democratizing center, um, something like that. Uh, but in, in Tunisia, uh, by contrast, Ananda was out of the radar for for, for <laughs> during Benai's uh, era. So um, uh, the kind of um, uh, and this helped uh, help Ananda to um, build already a common ground with other opposition parties because they were equally repressed. No, I mean Seper uh, and which played the lion's share. But all parties that at some point were banned from Ben Ali. So um, they, they kind of built right. a, an alternative democratic center but before the shoot of Ben Ali. So yes, the problem is a, is our assessment of the, of the inclusion moderation hypothesis, which is very, very popular. And, uh, but yes, it needs to be kind of reassessed. A bit. But it's, it's really fascinating. Uh, Valeria, thank you so much for talking with us and sharing your research. Thank you.